everyone, I hope you're all doing so well and welcome back to the Criminal Makeup Podcast. Each episode we dive into the minds of some of the worst criminals in history and today we are going to be talking about the case of Amy Bishop. Now, Amy Bishop, oh boy, was she a piece of work. Amy was a university professor, but she was a professor from hell. She was arrogant, she was lazy, she had no interest in her colleagues or her students, and Amy also had some pretty terrible personality traits. She was narcissistic, she was entitled, she thought that the whole world revolved around her, and if she did not get her own way, there would be trouble. The best way to describe Amy is that she was a Karen. She really was the Karen of all Karens, the true president of the Karen society. She would complain about everything to anyone who might listen because she was Dr. Amy Bishop. You must remember that throughout this episode. She is Dr. Amy Bishop. And unfortunately, because of Amy's attitude and her personality, this led Amy to carrying out an absolutely horrific act on her university campus. And that is what we are going to be talking about today, so let's dive in. Amy Bishop was born on the 24th of April, 1965, making her a Taurus. And Amy grew up in Braintree, Massachusetts, where she lived with her parents, Sam and Judy, and her younger brother, Seth, who was three years younger than her. Now, as a child, Amy was described as very intelligent, very bright, but she was also very shy, very withdrawn. Now, her brother, Seth, was like the polar opposite of that. He was also very intelligent. The whole family was actually very academically intelligent intelligent, but he was very social. He was more of an extrovert. He didn't have any problems making friends. He was very popular, very charismatic. And the relationship between Amy and her brother is very significant. There is quite a significant sibling rivalry going on here, which plays a big part. And Amy just always struggled to understand why her brother found everything easy. Like how did he manage to just make friends so easily? How was he able to approach people and just start talking to them? Amy couldn't do that. However, this wasn't the only thing that really frustrated Amy because Seth was also the apple of their parents' eye. Seth was the golden child. He was the one that was always praised. He was definitely the favorite child. And it was the kind of dynamic as well that Seth kind of knew about. So he would definitely suck up to his parents at time. He would do things without asking. He would like shovel the snow without asking. He would help old ladies carry their groceries across the road. And I'm not even joking there, he would. He could literally do no wrong. He could never put a foot wrong. And even when he possibly did get into a little bit of trouble, maybe wasn't the perfect child, he would still not be criticized as much as Amy would be. And Amy just struggled to live constantly in her brother's shadow. And this was obviously their dynamic, their rivalry at home, but it also extended to school and activities at school as well. So Amy's best subject was science, but Seth would always do better at science. Amy started to play the violin. She actually was pretty good at it. Well, Seth then asked if he could also play the violin and Seth became better than Amy at violin. And Amy and Seth would fight constantly. So it's not exactly unusual, is it, to have a sibling rivalry. The things that I have described right now are not exactly unusual, but their sibling rivalry was like to the extreme. Seth came first in pretty much every academic challenge he ever entered. He always 
did well at the science fairs at school. Seth would often be celebrated in the local newspaper for his academic achievements. And when the family would sit down at the dinner table, quite often their mom would be sat there with the local newspaper and hold it up and say things like, oh, look how good Seth is doing. Everything that Seth did was an achievement, a celebration. He was always praised. Yet Amy, who was intelligent, gifted in her own right, was only ever criticized. Even down to the smallest things, like Amy's hair. Her mom would always criticize her about her hair. Now Amy would cut her hair herself and she would take a pair of scissors and she would cut her bangs really short on her forehead, which definitely became her signature style. It was definitely her style from childhood that she carried on into her adult years. And her mom would just always go on at her about her hair and say like, oh, you should just go to a hairdresser's and get a proper haircut and actually get a nice haircut. And this was just a constant pattern in Amy's childhood. She felt like she had to jump through hoops to even get attention. She felt like she had to work twice as hard as her brother to even just get the smallest little bit of recognition. But even when she did get the attention of her parents, her parents would just turn around and say, oh, that's very good, Amy, but did you know that your brother can do it a million times better? That is obviously not exactly what they said, but you get what I mean. And from a very young age, Amy was a pretty angry child. She just felt like the world was against her and the world was never gonna give her any attention or praise that she deserved. And Amy grew to see everyone as the enemy, which is definitely something that is a big part of today's case. But like I said in the intro, she definitely made it very clear at times her credentials because she never wanted to feel undervalued, if that makes sense. But yeah, that will all be clear later on in the story. I feel like I'm jumping way ahead there. Now, after high school, Amy went to Northeastern University in Boston. And to be honest, she was probably relieved to be away from her family, away from her brother. She felt like she could finally go off on her own and step out of her brother's shadow. But unfortunately, that would not last long because when it came time for Seth to go to university, he enrolled into the same university. Now, I don't know why he did that. Like, I don't know whose decision that was. I don't know if it was just coincidental. I don't know. But even though they're both adults now, their rivalry still continued. Seth continued to play violin and he excelled at violin at uni. He, again, was very charismatic. He had lots of friends. He was the popular kid. Seth was seen as the cool kid on campus and Amy was seen as the complete opposite. Amy was definitely a bit of an outcast. She didn't have as many friends friends. People thought that she was a bit weird because she was a part of the Dungeons and Dragons society and she would often be teased for being a part of that society. And Amy would go home and complain to her parents about the situation, about how Seth was still taking the limelight from her, but she would also complain to her parents that they always favored Seth over her. And I know I have gone on about their sibling rivalry for a very long time now. You're probably thinking, okay, Danielle, we get it. But I'm just trying to emphasize their relationship and the dynamic that they had because it is very significant to what happens next in the story. So now we get to the 6th of December, 1986. Amy is currently 21 years old and her brother Seth is 18. So on this day, it was a seemingly normal day for the family. Their dad went off to work and Seth and his mom also left the house. They were running some errands and Amy was left in the house on her own. Now at around 2 p.m. that afternoon, Seth and their mom returned home. They went into the kitchen. They were unloading some groceries that they bought. When they hear Amy coming down the stairs, 
Now, Amy entered the kitchen and she was holding a shotgun. Her mom and brother look at her and are just like, what the hell is going on? Like, why the hell do you have a shotgun in your hands? Now, the family only had this one gun and none of them really ever used it. It was just for emergencies. It wasn't like a hobby or anything like that. So the fact that Amy was standing there with a gun, she had no experience with the gun. Her mom and brother were like, what the hell is going on? And Amy starts to say, oh, I was scared that someone was gonna break in. So I got the shotgun and I loaded it. Now there is a shell in here and I can't get it out. Can you help me? And her mom now knowing that this gun is loaded is going into a panic right now. And she says to Amy, do not point that gun at anyone. Now, Amy seemingly ignoring her mom proceeds further into the kitchen and she swings the gun until it is in the direction of her brother. Amy, as she swings the gun towards her brother, says to her brother, can you help me unload this gun? Amy is currently standing with a shotgun pointing directly at Seth now, and the gun goes off. Amy had just shot her brother at point blank range. He collapsed instantly and Amy fled the scene with the shotgun still in her hand. She is running down the street with this shotgun. She cuts through a woodland area until she makes her way to a car dealership. And she enters the car dealership with shotgun in hand and she literally tries to steal a car from the car dealership. She goes into the car dealership, she's pointing her gun at the employees there and she's shouting, I need a car, I need a car, somebody give me some keys. She even starts blurting out this random story that she's trying to get away from her husband and she needs a car, but obviously that's a load of crap. The employees don't do what Amy wants, they don't hand over any keys. And thankfully, Amy just leaves the car dealership with without shooting anybody, which is obviously, considering what she's just done, was a very strong probability. So now Amy is just back on the streets with the shotgun still in hand and the police have obviously been phoned. They are on their way. And when the officers arrive, they corner Amy. An officer is holding his gun up towards Amy and he's telling Amy to put the gun on the floor. Amy refuses. She refuses to put that shotgun down. The officer is slowly approaching her. He's trying to calm down the situation. He's saying like, listen, just calm down, put the gun down, no one needs to get hurt. You know the kinds of things they say, but she is still refusing to put it down. However, just at that moment, another officer arrives on the scene and he manages to sneak up behind Amy and he is also pointing his gun at her. Now, Amy realizes that she is surrounded. There is no way out of this situation. She finally puts the gun down and she is immediately arrested and taken to the police station. Meanwhile, back at Amy's house, paramedics were on the scene trying to save her brother's life. He had suffered a severe gunshot wound to the chest. And when the paramedics arrived, blood was pouring everywhere. A main artery had been ruptured and his liver was completely destroyed. And he was rushed to the hospital, but sadly there was absolutely nothing that anyone could do and an hour after being shot, Seth was pronounced dead. He had been shot and killed by his sister, Amy. So now we go back to the police station and police officers 
hear that Seth has died and they're thinking, okay, well, this is now a murder investigation. There was no doubt in anyone's mind that this was murder. So when the police take Amy in for questioning, they are saying things like, did you do this on purpose? Was this intentional? Like what was going on? And Amy was just like, no, 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 like I didn't. It was all an accident. But the police officers were not buying it. I mean, there were so many things that just didn't add up. First of all, it was discovered that when Amy shot Seth, that was actually the second bullet that was fired from that shotgun on that day. So it was discovered that Amy had accidentally fired the shotgun when she was in her bedroom prior to her mom and brother returning home. And when she accidentally fired the shotgun in her bedroom, it had completely smashed a mirror and destroyed a wall. It had put a hole through her wall. So the police were just like, yeah, this does not add up. If you accidentally fire a gun, you don't then take that gun, reload it, and casually wander into the kitchen and point that gun at family members. But the biggest piece of evidence against Amy was that she fled the scene with the gun. Anyone could understand that she fled the scene, maybe out of panic, anxiety, stress, but why would she take the gun with her? But not only that, when she fled the scene, she reloaded the gun again and essentially tried to rob a car dealership. <laughs> that does not scream accidental shooting to anyone. So this is a very weak, shaky story coming from Amy. I mean, no one is believing her, quite rightly so. And then all of a sudden, a message comes through to the officers interviewing Amy, telling them to let her go. And the officers were stunned. I mean, they were interviewing a murder suspect. They had written on their charge sheet, murder. There was no doubt in anyone's mind that this was murder. And now they're being told to let her go. That does not make sense. Or does it make complete sense? Because it turns out that Amy's mom, Judy, was very good friends with the chief of police. She was apparently a very big supporter of him in her community, and she also donated to his campaign. And now Judy, after the shooting, phones up the chief of police and says, look, I was there at the shooting. It was a complete accident please let Amy go. I do not want to lose both of my children. And that was it. Case closed. No further investigation was made. So after Amy had gotten away with murder, let's not beat around the bush here because she murdered her brother. She was able to just go on and live her life. And this is why I was saying it was very important for me to really paint the picture of Seth and Amy's relationship and what it was actually like, because I think there is no doubt in anyone's mind that it was murder. So Amy, after finishing her degree, went on to study for a PhD at Harvard and bloody hell, she would not let anyone forget that she went to Harvard. And she started to work as a researcher and a professor at the university, and this is where she also met her husband. Now, Amy's husband was a man called Jim Anderson. They had actually met when they were in university because he was also in the Dungeons and Dragons Society, and that is how they met. And five years after Seth's murder, they got married and started a family. They would eventually go on to have four children, and this next bit is honestly just really sick. I actually couldn't believe this happened. So they had four children. Children, and they had three girls and one boy. The boy was the youngest. And when the boy was born, he was actually born on Seth's birthday. I know, what are the chances of that? But not only that, 
Amy decided to call her son Seth. Are you being serious? I was just gobsmacked. I was like, really? 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 You murder your brother? And then by some weird coincidence, your firstborn son is born on his birthday. And then you have the audacity to call him Seth. Wow. So Amy was just able to go on and live her life. And this is where we get to the part of the story where she really does become the Karen that she was always destined to be, the self-elected president of the Karen Society. Amy, to no surprise to any of you, was an absolute nightmare to be around. She was entitled, ignorant, arrogant, and she was like this with everyone, family, friends, even though no one really wanted to be around her, so she didn't really have that many friends, colleagues. Amy truly just didn't like everyone. She was offended and annoyed by everyone. And Amy was always very vocal about her dislikes and what she didn't like and this and that. There was one time when Amy was getting her PhD when she literally threw a hissy fit. So this all started because she was working on a paper and her name was listed second as one of the authors and she thought that she deserved to be listed first. And because she wasn't listed first, she threw a hissy fit. She went absolutely crazy at the first name author. She went absolutely crazy at this woman. She was heard screaming at the fellow author, the one that was listed first. She was heard screaming, who do you think you are, you silly bitch? I am Dr. Amy Bishop. And Amy loved to remind people that she was Dr. Amy Bishop. Harvard trained. Don't forget that. Harvard trained. She's Harvard trained. Did you know that? She's Harvard trained. And Amy would just go crazy. And this incident is not isolated. It did happen a couple of times. But honestly, we don't have time to go through every single one of her hissy fits. But she was very scary. She was very intimidating and she would reduce people to tears. And Amy wasn't just like this at work with her colleagues. She was also like it with her neighbors. She was probably more so like it with her neighbors because if the neighbors ever did anything that Amy didn't like, she would complain. Amy would be the first one over knocking on their door, complaining about absolutely anything and everything. You know that uh, program, Neighbours from Hell? Is it actually called that? Well, Amy would definitely be on that program. And she would complain about the stupidest things. For example, if kids were outside of her house, playing, talking, laughing, God forbid, she would go crazy. She would be ranting and raving, scaring the kids off. If someone was doing DIY in the house, even on their own front drive, not really making that much noise, Amy would be over complaining, knocking on the door saying, how dare you make this noise? How dare you do DIY on your own house? But Amy would complain to her neighbors. She would complain to anyone that would listen to her, but she wasn't satisfied with just complaining about her neighbors to her neighbors. Oh no, because Amy would phone the police constantly. She would phone the police about kids playing outside of her house. It's like, you don't call the police for that. Why are you wasting police time? Any petty, small neighborhood dispute, Amy would call the police. There was one time where Amy phoned up the police and said, listen, there's a rock band playing outside of my house. They're causing so much noise. They're causing so much commotion. I need you to come out immediately and sort it out. So when the police arrived, they arrived to find a young boy practicing guitar in his own garage. Yeah, Amy had said that there was a whole bloody rock band outside of her house. And this poor 
young boy was doing absolutely nothing wrong. He was just practicing guitar in his own garage. And he would have been so terrified because the police turned up at his house and he was probably thinking, oh my God, am I going to get arrested for practicing guitar? But I haven't even gotten to the most Karen of Karen things yet. So Amy's kids were lactose intolerant, meaning that they couldn't eat regular ice cream. And there would be an ice cream van that would come around the neighborhood and Amy would get so angry that this ice cream van would come down her street. She would say, oh, how dare this ice cream van come down the street and allow other children to eat ice cream when mine can't. And Amy was so annoyed that this ice cream van would come down the street that she filed a complaint. Have you ever heard of something so ridiculous? Who files a complaint? about an ice cream van. She filed the complaint and said that it wasn't fair that the ice cream van would come down her street when her children were not allowed ice cream. And unbelievably, like I actually can't believe I'm saying this, but her complaining worked because Amy managed to ban the ice cream van from coming down her street. Why? Why do people give in to people like this? Like, why? And there are many more incidents. Those are just the craziest, most unbelievable ones. But as you can imagine, Amy was pretty much complaining every single day. The neighbors absolutely hated her. I know that is a very strong word, but they did. She was an absolute nightmare. No one, absolutely nobody wanted to be around her. Just as much as the neighbors couldn't stand Amy, Amy could also not stand any of them. She didn't like any of them and she was determined to pretty much make sure that no one ever had fun around her, no one ever had any luxuries like an ice cream van. And people like Amy always feel like they are so hard done by. They always feel that the world is against them. And Amy has said that herself, that she always felt like the world was against her. But with people like Amy, it's like, you bring it on yourself. But so far, since her brother's shooting anyway, Amy has never been physically violent to anybody. She has definitely been a nuisance and a nightmare. A lot of people don't like her, but she's never actually done anything that has broken the law since her brother's shooting. But that was all about to change. there were two incidents that we need to talk about. So the first one came in 1993. Amy was working as a researcher and she received a negative review from a superior. Oh no, God forbid. And Amy was absolutely furious about this review. She felt like she was amazing. And why would anyone not like her? She did not deserve this negative review. And because of this review, Amy actually resigned from her job because she was really upset and quote, on the verge of a nervous breakdown. So after Amy resigns, Amy is heard ranting and raving about her supervisor, saying things like, I hate that man, I hate him so much, I want to shoot or stab or strangle him. And then not long after Amy resigns, her supervisor, who is a man called Paul, returns home from work and he arrives home to a suspicious package on his front doorstep. 
And he was very suspicious of this package. Like he was just like, this is not right. Something doesn't feel right here. And I should point out as well that when this happened in 1993, this is in the height of the Unabomber, okay? Ted Kaczynski is still at large. So when a university professor, anyone in that kind of field receives a suspicious package, everyone is immediately wary. And thankfully, Paul was like, okay, not really gonna touch this. He did actually open it a little bit and he did see some wires. So he was like, okay, I'm just gonna leave it there. And the bomb squad arrived immediately and thankfully defused the bomb and no one was harmed. But if Paul wasn't so wary, God forbid what actually could have happened. And I don't think the bomb was as sophisticated as the Unabomber bombs, but it was a bomb, you know, like it still would have done damage. And who knows, it could have actually killed Paul. And the only suspect for sending this pipe bomb was Amy Bishop. Paul could not think of anyone else that would send the pipe bomb. And the police did interview Amy as a suspect. However, there wasn't enough evidence to actually prove that she was the one that sent it. And therefore, no charges were ever brought against her. She did do that pipe bomb, by the way, it was her. And I just couldn't believe when I read this, I was like, oh my God, she sent a pipe bomb. That is very, very rare. You don't really hear of bombs being sent that often. And 9.9 .9 times out of 10, it's normally a man that's done it, not a woman. And it's just very bizarre, isn't it, Amy? is definitely a very unusual case. And that is just a severe escalation. Just because she received a negative review, she sends a pipe bomb to the person. So yeah, Amy sends a bomb and it is suspected that her husband helped her a little bit, but we don't know, there's no evidence of that. So yeah, Amy sends a pipe bomb and no charges are brought, she's not arrested. But there is another incident that actually would end up in Amy getting arrested. So this is on a Saturday morning in 2002. So we have jumped ahead a little bit here. Amy, Jim and the children are going to an IHOP restaurant. Now, side note. I didn't know what an IHOP was. I'd heard of it, but I didn't actually know what it was in my head. This is gonna sound so stupid. I just had visions of people on pogo sticks, literally hopping around. I thought it was kind of like one of those playground restaurant things and people hopping around. I didn't have a clue that IHOP stands for International House of Pancakes. Wow. Now I wanna go because I love pancakes and I wish we had things like that in the UK because we don't. So back to the story anyway, I feel so stupid. I can't believe I've actually just said that. So Amy, Jim and the children are at this IHOP restaurant. It's very, very busy. They need a booster seat for one of their children, but the restaurant is very busy. So they ask a waitress, like, we need a booster seat. Can you go get us a booster seat? And the waitress says to them, oh, I'm really, really sorry, but we've just given away our last booster seat. Now this is Dr. Amy Bishop and she does not take no for an answer and she absolutely loses it. Amy starts shouting in the restaurant, we were here first, we deserve that booster seat, get us a booster seat. And then Amy gets up from her table and makes her way over to another table, which was the table that just so happened to get the last booster seat. The woman that was sat there with just her children, her name was Michelle. Amy goes up to Michelle and starts demanding the booster seat off her. And Michelle is just innocently sitting there eating breakfast with her children. And she's like, 
no, I'm kind of using it. And Amy says to Michelle, quote, you bitch, give me the booster seat. I was here first. Who the F do you people think you are? And Michelle was still just sat there, innocent, not engaging really in this behavior. And she was just saying like, listen, leave us alone. We just want to eat breakfast in peace. Amy said back to her, quote, shut up, you dumb bitch. You have no idea who you're dealing with. Amy just had completely lost it. She was shouting, screaming, swearing at this woman. She was making this whole scene in this restaurant. The restaurant staff were actually being pretty polite to Amy, which honestly, she doesn't deserve that. And they were saying, please, can you leave? Like, I think you should leave. And then all of a sudden, Amy goes back up to Michelle, who was just that innocent customer, sat at her table with her children. And Amy starts punching her repeatedly in the side of the head, shouting at the top of her lungs, I am Dr. Amy Bishop. I am Dr. Amy Bishop. Eventually, Amy does leave the restaurant. I don't know how they managed to get her out of that restaurant, but poor Michelle, she's just sat there and she has been physically assaulted by Amy. And it's ridiculous when you actually think about it that all of this was over a booster seat. Following the incident, Amy was arrested, but in the end, the charges were dropped and this never went on her permanent record. And I don't know why the charges were dropped. I don't know any of the details. That is all I know. Unfortunately, with people like Amy, they do just seem to bully their way out of every situation. So again, Amy has gotten away with this. She's gotten away with physical assault, just like she got away with murder. So now we are entering the story of the series of events that leads up to the tragic events of today's case. So this all started because Amy was offered a new job. Honestly, who wants to hire her? But clearly somebody did. The offer came from the University of Alabama in Huntsville. And this job that was offered to Amy gave her the prospect of getting tenure, which is something that Amy had always wanted her whole life. This was her dream. She'd always wanted tenure. So Amy jumped at the chance of taking this job. So she moved the family from Massachusetts to Alabama. And just a quick side note here, remember that Amy is the neighbor from hell. So when the street that Amy lived on found out that she was moving and leaving for good, they were all so happy that when she left, they celebrated and threw a pizza party, which I found absolutely hilarious. So now Amy is a professor at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. And to no surprise, she is a professor from hell. Amy was not liked by her students at all. She was reportedly very awkward in lectures. She was very arrogant and also very lazy because a lot of the students have said that she would just read out of the textbook, like just stand there at the front and read out of the textbook. And when I was at university, I had a couple of lecturers that did that and it was so infuriating. And you can actually see some of the students' reviews of Amy online, which honestly are so funny. So some of the students would say things like, horrible professor. I don't like her. Don't recommend her. Dr. Bishop is very intelligent, but a horrible teacher. And Amy's relationship with her students became that bad that a petition was started to remove her from her job. And this is rare. The University of Alabama in Huntsville had never seen this before. Like this doesn't happen. The students actually handed this petition in by hand to the university board. But in the end, the petition was dismissed and Amy was allowed to continue on teaching, which is honestly just so infuriating. It really is because when you go to university, that is expensive and it's so annoying when you get landed 
with lecturers, professors that literally don't care and they're not putting in any effort and you're not learning anything, but you're paying all of this money. And this went on for years that students were dissatisfied with Amy's teachings. But Amy didn't care. She didn't care that she wasn't liked. All she cared about was getting tenure. So it is now 2009 and the opportunity for Amy to apply for tenure comes up and she really needed to get this. Otherwise she was going to lose her job. Now I don't quite know how that works because I don't know how tenure works, but all I know is that she needed to get it otherwise she was going to lose her job. So Amy applies for tenure, but the problem is, is that none of her colleagues liked her, which is honestly not a surprise, is it? Because everywhere that Amy goes, no one likes her. Several of her colleagues had actually complained about her and pointed out her erratic behavior. She was very, very difficult to work with. She was very overbearing. She didn't respect other people's views or beliefs. She would fly off the handle at the smallest thing. She was very confrontational. So Amy's tenure application was denied. And of course, Amy was absolutely furious about this because I've said this a million times, but Amy does not take no for an answer. She thought that there was this big conspiracy against her. Amy always thought that the whole world was against her. She even hired a lawyer and tried to sue the university. But all of her appeals failed and Amy was told that by the end of the semester in 2010, she would no longer be able to teach and that she was being fired. All of Amy's colleagues breathed a sigh of relief because they thought, finally, she's out of here. But unfortunately, Amy had other plans. And this is where we get to the tragic events of today's case. On the 12th of February, 2010, around 3 p.m., Amy Bishop entered a staff meeting with fellow colleagues and staff members from her department at the university. There are around 13 other people in that room as well as Amy. Now the other professors were really surprised to see Amy there because this meeting was about the following semester and Amy wasn't going to be there the following semester. She had been fired. So it was very awkward. The other professors were like, um, okay, why is Amy here? But they continued on the meeting just acted normal. And normally Amy was very vocal in these meetings. She was very confrontational. She would always, always talk over people. But this meeting, she was very, very quiet. Inside the room was a fellow colleague called Deborah Moriarty. Now she had become friends with Amy, even though no one was really friends with Amy. They had like formed some sort of friendship. They had bonded over similar interests and similar lifestyles. They bonded over their kids and over grandkids. However, Deborah had voted against Amy in her tenure application. So things between the two were a little bit awkward. So 40 to 50 minutes had passed. The meeting had gone on as normal, but it was coming to an end now. And Amy had not said a single word the whole meeting, which was definitely very weird. Another thing that was extremely weird about Amy is that she was carrying a purse. Now, Amy never carried a purse anywhere. So when the meeting ended, Amy got up out of her seat. She moved in front of the door, blocking the way. She then reached into her handbag and pulled out a gun and just started firing at her colleagues one by one. Amy first aimed her gun at the man running the meeting, Gopi Padilla. She shot him in the head execution style, killing him instantly. She then aimed her gun at another colleague, 
wounding them, but not killing them. Amy then shot two more colleagues in quick succession, Adriel Johnson and Maria Davis, and tragically, both of them would lose their lives. She then aimed her gun at another colleague, shooting them, again, wounding them, but they would survive. And everything that I have just said there literally happened in the space of 60 seconds. This whole thing was chaos. The terror inside that room is unimaginable. Some of the colleagues managed to dive under tables to avoid the shots, but they were all completely helpless in that room. However, it was at this point, Deborah, who was Amy's ex-friend, saw an opportunity to possibly stop her. At this point, Deborah was under a table and she could see Amy's legs. So she reached out and grabbed her legs, trying to shock her, trying to knock her over in some way, but it didn't work. Amy just shook her off. And then Amy turned her gun and pointed it at Deborah. Deborah was literally staring into the barrel of the gun. She was expecting it to go off at any minute. And then Amy pulled the trigger, but the gun jammed and the shot did not fire and Deborah was still alive. Then Deborah, quick thinking on her part, she saw this as an opportunity to actually stop Amy because the fact that Amy's gun had jammed startled Amy and it kind of took her out of the situation for a couple of seconds and Deborah started pushing Amy, pushing her over and over again, trying to force her out of that room. And she managed to push Amy completely out of that room and shut the door. So now Amy is not in the room. The rest of the colleagues that are able to get up on their feet and block and barricade the door so Amy cannot get back in because they are all terrified that Amy is going to somehow fix the gun and come back into the room and start shooting them all again. But thankfully, Amy wasn't able to fix the gun. She just calmly walked away from the scene. She actually went into a bath bathroom and disposed of the gun. She then walked up to a random student who I'm sure that student did not think that she was the shooter. She walked up to this random student, asked to borrow their cell phone. Amy then phones her husband and says, quote, I'm done. And then she asks her husband to come and pick her up from the campus. Now, at this point, the police were already on the scene. They had received numerous phone calls from a lot of people on campus who had heard the gunshots and so many people were fleeing the campus. It was total panic and mayhem. When the emergency services were on the scene, they quickly attended the conference room to tend to the wounded and three people were injured and very tragically, three people had lost their lives. Following the arrival of the police, they were informed of the identity of the shooter. So they were scouring the campus for Amy Bishop. They knew who they were looking for and they actually quickly found her because she was just stood outside of the campus, like at the back of the campus, calmly waiting for her husband to pick her up. And Amy was immediately arrested and it was at this moment that a photographer managed to get a photo of Amy just as she was being put in the police car. And you can see in her face, she has this cold, dead stare. She's just so creepy. That just looks like there is no emotion there whatsoever. Police also had to investigate a potential bomb on the campus as well. People had become concerned that Amy had booby-trapped the science department with a, quote, herpes bomb. You heard that right 
herpes bomb. Now, Amy had done some research into the herpes virus, and they were worried that she had made a chemical bomb from the herpes virus in order to spread herpes around the campus. However, the police found no evidence of this, and the investigation into the bomb was closed. But to be honest, given Amy's past, I wouldn't be surprised. Amy Bishop was then taken into custody and charged with capital murder, three counts of capital murder, and three counts of attempted murder. When people first heard that there was a mass shooting at the university, people's minds immediately went to a student on student attack. People were in disbelief that this middle-aged woman with a PhD from Harvard, who was a very high achiever with no criminal record, even though she should have had a criminal record, but right now it seems like she doesn't have a criminal record. She does not fit the profile of a mass shooter. She doesn't fit the profile of your typical bomber either. But then after it obviously started to circulate that it was Amy Bishop that was behind the shooting, stories were coming out about her character. And obviously, we all know about her character. So the stories were coming out about how she was a neighbor from hell, a colleague from hell, the incident at IHOP. Also, people started talking about the suspicious death of her brother. In the four days since police say Professor Amy Bishop opened fire inside a faculty meeting, a string of unsettling episodes has emerged in her past, including a report tonight that in 2002, she was charged with assault after allegedly punching a woman during a restaurant argument. She also killed her brother, but that was ruled an accident. Was Amy Bishop a ticking time bomb all along. And thankfully, after this mass shooting, the investigation into her brother's murder was actually reopened. People started to look at that case in a completely different light now. And after re-investigating, Amy Bishop was also charged with the murder of her brother, Seth. Amy's husband, Jim, was also questioned on his connection to the mass shooting because it is suspected that he knew about it. I mean, when she phoned him after the shooting, she did say, I'm done. And you don't say that to someone unless someone on the other end of the phone knows what you're talking about. But he was never charged with anything. And obviously, it's also suspected that he helped with the pipe bomb earlier on in the story. But he was never charged with anything there either. So... I don't know the husband's involvement. So then Amy's case went to trial and she tried to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, but she wasn't exactly insane, was she? Let's be realistic. Her defense realized that this, it wasn't gonna work. So in the end, Amy did plead guilty and she did that because there was a deal on the table that if she pled guilty, the death penalty would be taken off the table. And then after she was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, the charges relating to her brother's shooting were dropped because the prosecution was satisfied that Amy was never going to get out of prison. So there was no point trying to pursue the charges of her brother. I kind of feel different. I feel like everyone should be held accountable for what they've done and there should be justice for her brother. But yeah, she wasn't charged with anything to do with her brother. And Amy, for pretty much her whole life, got away with things. She was never really held accountable for anything. I mean, look at what she did in her life, starting with her brother's murder. And she got away with all of it. And she probably thought that she was going to get away with this shooting at the university. But thankfully, she didn't. And this is where we should now focus on the victims of this story, because I didn't really get a chance 
to tell you anything about the victims during the story. Following the shooting, a memorial service was held at the University of Alabama in Huntsville with over 3,000 people in attendance. Gopi Padilla was the chairman of the biology department of the University of Alabama in Huntsville. He was a great leader in the science community and he was absolutely loved by everyone on campus. He was described as having such a warm, kind-hearted smile and he had such a gentle manner. He is survived by a wife and children. Maria Davis was an associate professor of biology. She was the happiest when she was cooking or with her dog and it was her smile and laugh that would light up any room that she was in. She is survived by her husband and his children. Adriel Johnson was an associate professor of biology. He enjoyed fishing with his family. He enjoyed spending so much time cooking on the grill with his friends and family and neighbours and just spending time with his loved ones. He was described as such a pleasant person to be around, someone that was just so kind. He had a really kind-hearted, warm smile, and he is survived by his wife and children. And then we also have to talk about Seth Bishop because he was only 18 years old when he was murdered. He was so young. He had his whole life ahead of him, and Amy took that away. Seth was intelligent. He had a bright future. He had so many friends. He was the kind of person that lived life to the full. And it's such a tragedy because he never got to fulfill his dreams that he had and he had so many. And there were just so many lives that were destroyed because of one person. Every single victim that I have just said had a wife or husband and children. They have been taken away from their family. All of those families have to suffer now and have to go through the loss of their loved one because of one person. And then you've also got to think of the other victims of the stories that did survive this attack, the other colleagues in that room, the trauma that they went through, and they have to live with that for the rest of their lives. The other students that were at the university on the day of the shooting, the other colleagues that were in the building, everyone that had to deal with this, they are all victims as well. And mass shootings are always just really sad, aren't they? They always just hit different. And it's just so annoying when people like Amy that go through life and they are so entitled, so privileged, and they just take advantage of that and they use and abuse people, think that they can get away with everything and then tragedy like this happens and it's just absolutely heartbreaking. And that brings us to the end of the episode on Amy Bishop. Thank you so much everyone for listening today. There are no updates on this case. Subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of The Criminal Makeup. And if you enjoy the show, it would mean a lot if you could leave a five-star review. In the meantime, if you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please take the time to look at the description for this episode for some helpful resources. Special thanks to my producers at Audio Boom Studios and I'll see you all in the next one.